All right, let us just pray before we, uh, before we come to the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can gather here. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the birth of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. May our hearts be truly focused upon you this Christmas to know the reason for the season. At Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. What I want to do today is kind of look, look at Matthew chapter 2, but also just consider Luke as well. Uh, the first two chapters of Luke, the, uh, the nativity scene and, uh, and everything, everything that kind of coincides with the birth of Jesus. The past connections to Jesus, uh, the present connections to Jesus, the future connections to Jesus, and how all that ties into seeking and looking for the King. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody ju- just this week, and this person, uh, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, and, um, and he, was, he was lamenting, uh, kind of, uh, he wouldn't have used that word lamenting, but he was kind of lamenting about, about this, about the society in which we live today. Um, that it's a, a society that's quick to kind of push out the traditions of, of which it has. You know, we're kind of, we don't have many traditions in Western society. And, uh, and Christmas is one of those traditions where about whether somebody's religious or not religious, whether somebody's a follower of Jesus or not, um, kind of, it's very special in people's eyes. And this person was lamenting in the way that he, he kind of, uh, as somebody who's not religious and, and doesn't follow Jesus Christ, he's, he, he's got a concern for society. He's, he's concerned about the way that it's going, that it seems to be abandoning certain foundations and ethics and morals and things like that. And he's concerned for his children. So for him, he said, look, he said, science has formed his views. He's not religious, so make that of what you will. And, um, but this is, this, is, this is his understanding of somebody who's not religious, and he's, he's concerned about it. So he sees the, the importance of Christmas and the connections that it can bring. So what I want to talk about today are the connections. And I think in one sense, when a society starts to... Uh, abandon its foundations, when we lose that vertical, the vertical looking towards God, we can also lose those horizontal connections as well that we have with one another. When we lose the vertical, we can also lose the horizontal as well. And, uh, and in this society, it's a, it's a, a very progressive, quick-changing society. You know, in history, things, things would have been like this. Uh, changes in society would have been minimal, you would have lived in your town, on your village. You would have had tight connections with one another, um, but it would have been. But changes would rarely occur. And if they did, then you would have time to evaluate those changes and think about those changes and the repercussions that it's had on society. In our society, things are moving so so quickly that we haven't had time really to evaluate and think about the repercussions and the consequences for what's happening. And so I would encourage and really kind of state that the importance of Christmas. The importance of Christmas and the connections, not just to God, but also to one another and to families as well. And when I think about Christmas, I don't know about you, but there's, um, there's certain things. For me, when I think about Christmas, I think about home. Home, the word home comes to mind. And I remember growing up in the UK and um, uh, Christmases would be, um, sometimes there would be snow, sometimes there would just be grey sludge on the floor and it'd be cold and miserable and wet. But I remember being around family, being around the table, and I remember you, you would have your lamb and you would have your mint sauce and you would have Yorkshire puddings. Um, does anyone know what a Yorkshire pudding is? Great. I was going to say, if you don't, you haven't lived. <laughs> Great food. 
All it is, is it's like pancake mixture, isn't it? Put it in the oven, that's it, but it's, but it's amazing. So Yorkshire puddings, lamb, mint sauce, and then afterwards, the family would play games and things like that and play cards and what have you and have a drink or two. And it's just that feeling, that warmth, that connection which you get in your mind. And often, this is the case for many people, uh, that it's the, the remembrance of youth and the remembrance of what it was to be young and to be around family. Um, normally from a child perspective, for the parents there, especially when preparing meals, it can be quite an anxious time and a quite a contentious time, but for children it's, it's, it's wonderful. And then I was thinking about Christmas as well, I thought, thinking about connections, and I thought about, I was contrasting it to Easter. You know how in, when it comes to Easter, you've got Good Friday and then you've got the Resurrection Sunday, and often what happens is we come together on a Friday, we come together on a Friday and there's kind of like this kind of um, solemn feeling. You know, we're thinking about the crucifixion of Christ. We're thinking about uh, the depth of it and the gravity of the crucifixion of Christ. And, uh, and then when it comes Sunday, we're kind of elevated and we're high. And I was contrasting it to Christmas. And I don't think Christmas is absent of that. But I don't know if we kind of embody the emotions. Um, I, I don't know if we embody the emotions of what it means uh, to think about the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, Anthony touched upon this last week about you know, waiting for a child, looking forward for the birth of a child and things like that and the emotions that go with it. And I was thinking about this, and there can always be mixed emotions when having children. You know, there can be the anxiety, the tensions. Anthony touched upon this last week as well. Um, the tensions, the anxieties, but also the joy. And I thought about this when, when I had, um, when, when, um, when Knox was born, my son, and Jen was in hospital, and I went, for a, I went for a run. I went home and I went for a run, and I was just jogging and um, just running along, and I just started to, I just burst into tears. I just started to cry, and I think it was the, the over, kind of all the emotions, the tension, the exhaustion, and, uh, but also the joy, and I just started to cry, and I thought, man, it's like, this, this is something of what it's like, you know, when a, when a child is born. And I thought it's really difficult. It's really hard for men to have babies. And um, <laughs> <laughs> metaphorically, literally, it's very difficult for men to have babies. And, and women don't really know, you know, they don't know how good they've got it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> the struggle is real. Um, but I thought about what a child does and how it brings connections, how it, how it connects us and how the birth of Jesus is there to connect us all. So what I want to look at here is three points. One of the points is this, the connections of the past, the connections of the present, and the connections of the future. And so when I was looking at this, the first thing that I started to read was the genealogy of Matthew, right? So you go to chapter one, it's chapter one, and you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And normally, if you're like me, you look at genealogies and you kind of like, you get bored quickly, here's some names, you kind of like, you know, you, you just scan through it. But when you actually start to look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ and who he is, you get names like, you get Abraham, you get Isaac, you get Jacob, and, um, but then you get like Tamar, you get Ruth, you get Rahab, you get Bathsheba, you get Solomon. When you start to look at the genealogy, you know, I always think this, that if the Bible was going to be fabricated, if it was going to be made up, then you'd really want some good standing people coming before Jesus Christ. But what you see in the gene genealogy is quite something different. Jesus' family tree isn't all that crash hot. You know, if you, if you were to compare your own family, um, I think Jesus' family tree is a little bit worse. So I was looking at this, it's like some of the people in here, you've got Abraham, 
Uh, he lied about his wife. You know, he got, got his wife in trouble when he was in Egypt. She was taken by Pharaoh. He lied about his wife. You've got Jacob who deceived his own brother, right? He went to his father and kind of stole his brother's blessing. He was deceitful. Um, you've got Tamar. Some of the things you can't even talk about on a Sunday morning. You've got Tamar pretending to be a prostitute, tricking her father-in-law to kind of... So there's certain things that you can say and can't say. It's quite, quite out there. You've got Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth was a Moabite. So to the Israelites, Ruth would have been scum. She would have been, the, the Moabites were just not someone to, to tangle with because if you know the history of the Moabites and how they started, there was um, an obscure relationship between Lot and, 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 and some family members. That's the beginning of the Moabites. And that's part of Jesus's family tree. That's part of Jesus's genealogy. And then you've got Bathsheba, and in Matthew's account, he doesn't even mention the name of Bathsheba. He just says, oh, it's just the wife of, of, of um, Uriah the Hittite. And, um, and then you've got Solomon, and Solomon with his many wives and things like that, and the, how he was led astray into idol worship. This is Jesus' family tree. And I think when I'm looking at this, the connections, the connections which are bringing to the, coming to the birth of Jesus Christ, it's like, it's something like a jigsaw. Right. Where's Dianne? Dianne loves jigsaw analogies. So it's something like a jigsaw, and you have all these pieces that at first might not look like they're supposed to fit, but they do fit, and they fit well. And that's the story of God's redemption. That's the, that's the, the grand narrative of God's story. Um, these jigsaw pieces that look like they're not going to fit, but actually do fit. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up is because all of us here, all of us here, um, if we're going to look at Jesus' family tree, if we're going to look at the things that people have committed in the past and the sins and the fallen people, one person put it like this. We'll put it like this way. We could be those people. We could be those people in Jesus' family tree. In the genealogy of Jesus, we could be those people, broken people, sinful people. One person put it like this, that Jesus came from us and Jesus also came for us. He came from us, but he also came for us. And so I'd say to you that it's, if we're here today, and if there's a sense of guilt, if there's shame about things that you've done in your life, then that's part of the family. Then we fit right into one another. Um, if, if our story includes adultery or sexual immorality, then join the club. We're here as a family. We're part of the people. We're not standing here as holy, as righteous, as just, but we're standing here in the kind of the genealogy of Jesus in one sense. Um, if we're hypocrites, then I think join the club. We're all hypocrites here. This is part of Jesus. This is part of the part of the brokenness of humanity. But we come together in the in the transformative power of Jesus Christ, and we're here because we're returning to God because of the Son of God who was born at Christmas, born two thousand years ago. So Jesus comes from us, and Jesus comes for us. The next thing that I wanted to look at is just connections of the past, but also connections of the present. So one thing that when I, when I read scripture, it's, it's easy to look at the different stories in scripture and, and think that they're kind of disjointed, that they're not connected. But this is God's hand. This is God's decree. This is God's sovereign plan, his narrative, his story of redemption, his promise that joins all of these people and that people's also us, the people of the past, the people of the future, and it joins everyone together in God's story. And so there's a couple of things that happen here in Luke's, in Luke's testimony. Um, the connections that happen, not in chronological order, but you've got Anna, the prophetess, in the temple. You've got Simeon in the temple. You've got the Magi or the wise men, and you've got the shepherds. 
And all of these people, when Jesus is born, these are the present connections of when Jesus is there. So the first one is like, you've got Anna's testimony. They walk into the temple. Mary and Joseph are there dedicating Jesus. And Anna the prophetess, who's been, it's either, she's either 84 years old or she's been a widow for 84 years. She's in the temple day and night. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes in with Mary and Joseph and she proclaims his greatness. She gives glory to him. The next one that we see is Simeon. And Simeon's there. And he was given a promise that he would not die until he sees the Messiah. He's right there in the time. He's given a promise by God, you will not die until you see the Messiah. And it's amazing, I think, what Simeon says after this, because he says, he says that now he's seen the Messiah, now he can go in peace. Now that Jesus has come, now he can go in peace. When I was reading this, it reminded me um, of families that I've sat with in the past, So families, when somebody's dying, when somebody's there close to death, and sometimes they can be waiting for something. Sometimes they can be waiting for something before they die, before they go. And when you're sitting with a loved one, when you're sitting with someone with a family or when someone's going to die, sometimes they can just be waiting for something. It can be waiting for a sister. It can be waiting for a brother. I've got a relative in the UK at the moment who's very close to death, and she's just waiting for Christmas. She wants to get to Christmas, the last Christmas probably that she'll be able to spend with family. And sometimes it can get to that point where, where you'll get to Christmas and all of a sudden they will now go in peace. And I think it's the same as Simeon here. God gave him this promise that he wouldn't die until he sees the Messiah. But when he sees him, he says, now I can go. Now he can go because he's seen the Messiah. These are the connections which are happening in the present as Jesus is born. The next people that come along, not in chronological order, going back, are the shepherds and the magi or the shepherds and the wise men probably not kings, wise men and the shepherds. And I love what the symbolism, the deep symbolism of all these connections which happens with uh, the people around Jesus at that time. So first of all, in Luke uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see the shepherds. Some important points to take away. The shepherds, I think, symbolically represent Israel. The first people that are told about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the first ones when Jesus is born, the first ones that are made known are the shepherds. As Paul says, the the gospel goes out to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles. The shepherds are representing Israel. Um, Some people also say as well that, and I don't know how true this is, as I was listening to this or researching this and, and listening about the shepherds, some people say this, that the shepherds, um, the sheep, uh, the animals that the shepherds were looking after were actually the, the, the animals used for temporal sa- temple sacrifice. So these sheep or these lambs or whatever they had there, these were the ones that were used in te- temple sacrifice. So you can imagine these angels come to the shepherds and in effect what they're saying is leave these lambs and go see the true lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Leave these ones and go to the true lamb. Leave these animals and go see this. Leave the old religion behind. Leave the old sacrificial system behind and go see the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the other thing with the shepherds as well, which I think is amazing and and applies to us, is their willingness to go. They're they're, They're giving this proclamation that Jesus Christ has been born and I don't know what happens to the animals there. I would, I would hazard a guess that it's probably quite important for the shepherds to stay with the sheep. But in this case, what happens is when the, when the angels come, when they give this proclamation, they just leave. They go off. They go off to find the Son of God. They go off to search for baby Jesus. Like, and I think for us, this is, this is symbolic of us for what we should be doing with our faith. 
So in our faith, are we ready to go? Or are we tied onto the things of the past? They could have tied on, they could have said, what about these sheep? What about these sacrificials? What about these? We need these for the... It's like, no, no, no. They went and followed the lamb. When Jesus says, you know, take up your cross and follow him, it's the same thing. They just went. They just went. They went to go look for Jesus. And I think the other thing with the shepherds as well is a point that often people make is that the shepherds could have been marginalized or they could have been like the lower socioeconomic. Where in contrast to the, to the magi, in contrast to the wise men, the shepherds would have been kind of on different levels, so to speak. And I think there's something really, really important in that is that Jesus comes to all people. And you can see this with, with the wise men and you can see this with the shepherds. Jesus is there for all people. No matter, what our, no, no matter our past, no matter how poor, how rich, Jesus is there for all. And I love, the thing that I like about the analogy or the, or the symbolism of the shepherds is that it echoes God's heart. Uh, when I was reading this, I was also thinking about when, if you remember the story of when Saul is king, and then Saul kind of, uh, he does the wrong thing and he gets his kingship taken away from him. And then God says to Samuel, go anoint a new king. And when, and when Samuel goes to anoint a new king, he goes to the house of Jesse. And at first what happens, you get the several sons that come up and the first son comes up and, uh, and Samuel's like, surely this is the guy. Surely this is the guy. Look at him. Look at him. He's great. And God said, no, 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 not him. And then the second son comes along. It's like, surely this is the one. This is the one. And he goes through all the sons and it's not until the kind of the obscure son, the son that isn't even there, David, who's with the sheep. David, the shepherd, the one who wasn't there, the one who thought, no, 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 it's not this guy. And God says, no, it is that guy. And it's really amazing what he says to him. He says, do not consider the appearance. So this is about the first son. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, when I'm thinking about Christmas, it's easy to get... Um, swept away with the consumerism, with the things that aren't important, with the things, the, the outward appearances of things. But God looks to the heart. God looks to the soul of each and every single one of us. God embraces the humble, but he resists the proud. You can see that in David's life as well. David wasn't perfect, but this was God's chosen person for that time. And then, the, and then you have the wise men as well. So you have the shepherds, and then you have the Magi or the wise men. And quite often, you know, when we look at the, um, we'll look at the, the Christmas cards or you look at the postcards or whatever, the Christmas cards of, of, of Christmas, and you always have in there normally the picture of the shepherds and you have the picture of the, the wise men and everybody's there at the same time. Everyone's there at the same time. They're all there with Jesus, all there with Mary and Joseph. And, uh, but when you read in the scripture, it's quite clear that that was not the case. Not everybody was there at the same time. And so you have the shepherds come along, but then probably maybe about 12 months later, maybe even about 12 months, maybe 15 months, 14 months, then you have the wise men come along. It's not immediate that the wise men are there. It takes them quite some time to come along. I mean, you can imagine wherever they're coming from, let's say they're coming from Persia or they're coming from Babylon or something like that. They see the star and it's going to take them time to get ready. It's going to take them time to get ready to come along and see Jesus, right? So some people say they probably traveled about something like maybe 400 miles, worked that out in kilometers. 
They traveled a long way to go see Christ. They traveled a long way to go see Jesus. And then the other picture that we often have is that they're on camels. So you have these three people traveling on three camels with three small gifts to give to Jesus. And uh, I don't know where these stories come from, but it's, it's nice when you see it on the card. But, it, but I don't think it's what would have happened. You would have had the shepherds come, but then later on you would have had the wise men come. And they, wouldn't, they would have come with a massive entourage. So these people, these, and I don't even think there was three, there could have been there could be, I don't know how many there were, but these people were really, really, really important. And to travel that far would have been really, really risky as well. It would have been a dangerous road to travel. So these people would have come in, there would have been, I think there would have been chariots, perhaps horses, perhaps some camels. And, they, and some people even say they would have come with a small army. Like these guys were super, super important. Some people say that these guys would have established kings and also taken down kings. Like these guys were major. So you have these shepherds, the lowly shepherds, and then you have these guys coming from far, far away, hundreds of miles to come see Jesus. And then you think about the gifts that they're giving as well. And often we have them kind of giving these small little gifts. These guys are coming to worship the king. They're coming to honor a king. If you're coming to see a king, normally you bring lots of, you can imagine it would have been an immense amount of gold, immense amount of frankincense, immense amount of myrrh. These were the magi or the wise men. Other things important about these guys in, in contrast to the shepherds, where they went to, where they went to the shepherds first, uh, this was Israel. The wise men coming in, this is the Gentiles. This is representational of who Jesus is going, who, who Jesus is, is um, connecting to. He's connecting to all, not just Jews, but also Gentiles as well, the entire world. This is representational, not just the poor, but also the rich. He's connecting with everyone. The gifts that are given, I think, are really important. So the gifts that are given, the three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. The gold representing the dominion of Jesus Christ, the kingship of Jesus Christ. Uh, the frankincense was often offered in the temple. It's um, a symbolic of offering it to deity. And then you have the myrrh, which is kind of a strange gift to give to a baby. Because normally the myrrh, you can see this, in, I think it's John chapter 19. Normally the myrrh was given, um, you'd normally use it when somebody had died. It was, uh, you'd normally use it as a, you can see, that I think it's Nicodemus who uses it for the anointing and the embalmment of Jesus' body. So imagine if you've just had a child and someone brings you some myrrh, it's like, what are you trying to say? You know, this is my, this is like, this is, this is um, uh, prophetic in the way that Jesus is going to die. So you've got these three gifts. You've got the dominion, you've got the death, and you've got the deity of Jesus Christ represented in these gifts. And even in uh, it's Isaiah chapter 60, verses 6 to 7, what happens there uh, a prophecy about the future of nations coming to Jerusalem, they bring gold and frankincense. And they bring gold and frankincense in, in an offering to God. These gifts are deeply symbolic. Everything that's going, that when you read scripture, there's nothing in scripture that's, uh, every single word is there for a reason. Every single word is there, and every single word is deeply symbolic in the remembrance of Jesus Christ and the birth of Christ. So it's the recognition of Messiah as well. And I think the other important thing as well with the, uh, with the Magi is the challenge to authority. So they come and first of all, they see Herod, right? They rock in, they see Herod. Herod says he's agitated. The whole of Jerusalem is agitated. And you can imagine why they would have been agitated because you've got this whole entourage of, of wise men, of Magi, perhaps a small army all coming in and everybody's going to be unsettled by this. And Herod was a pretty nasty guy, as you can see when he, you know, when he tries to take out all the children below two years old as well. 
So everyone's agitated, and it's a challenge to authority. Because what happens is once, they actually, once the wise men actually go to see Jesus, they're actually given a message saying, don't go back to Herod, but go another way. Don't go back to him. And it's the same for us. When we come to know Jesus Christ, it's always a challenge to authority. It's a challenge to who we're going to submit to. Are we going to submit to the authorities of this world? Now, it's not a political point, but it's like, are we going to submit like the same way with the, with, the, with the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we must obey God and not men. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. In the same way with the Magi, when they came, they could have gone back to Herod. They could have submitted to him when he said, come back to me and let me know where Jesus is. But they didn't. They submitted to God and the obedience to God. So there's a question about what we stand for as well when we look at these stories. And the final point is this, the connection to the future. Connection to the future, connection to the past through the genealogy and the people that were, um, were there before Jesus, but through Jesus' um, family history, if you like. And then you've got connections of the present and then connections of the future. And I think something significant here, it's not exactly um, um, the, what the text is implying, but the way that the wise men left, the way that the wise men left, they didn't go back the way that they came. They didn't go back the way that they came. They left another way. To take some, I guess, a symbolic meaning from this is a question to us all around Christmas time. And not just a question of a one-time event, but a question every single day. Do we go back the way that we came? Do we go back to the old way? Do we go back to the authorities of the world? Do we go back to the idols of this world? Or do we take a new way? Like the Magi, like the wise men who decided to take another way. It's a question to us as well at this time of Christmas. Jesus is born. It's a question to us. Which, which direction do we take? For someone who's never known Jesus Christ before, it might be a question of are we going to take a new way? Are we going to follow Jesus? For those that know Jesus Christ, it's a question every single day as to which direction we're going to go. So Jesus leaves us this legacy, the genealogy of Jesus, the family, family tree of Jesus. Jesus is from us. Jesus is for us. We have the connections of the past, the connections of the present, and the connections to the future. But I think the most important point is that when we're thinking about Christ, and we can think about him just as a baby, I think Mel mentioned this when she was praying, it's not just the baby Jesus, it's who Jesus is. Sometimes when we look at Scripture, people can have different theological frameworks as to how they interpret Scripture. I think a really important way is to look at it as God's story, God's narrative, and the main point is the promise. It's the promise of Messiah. It's the promise of Jesus Christ. It's the promise of the King. Starting from Genesis 3.15, going all the way through, starting from the fall, going right the way to the end, is the promise. Everything pivots around Jesus Christ. And you can see this going through Scripture. Genesis 3.15, the promise to Eve. Isaiah 9.6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. Isaiah 53, predicting the death of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9, um, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious. It's the promise, the promise of this time of year, of the king, of the baby Jesus, the one who grows up, the one who grows to be a man, the one who goes to the cross, the one who's crucified, the one who's resurrected so that we can have forgiveness of sins. In our society, in a society that's losing its way, losing its traditions, uh, losing the things that it, that it once stood for, 
you know it's like now we don't have that foundation anymore and the things the values the values that we have in this culture become um, disorientated in one sense because now there's no foundation there's no anchor within the society that's holding us and so people start to reinterpret morals values ethics and things like that and we become kind of disorientated with that one of the most important things is Christmas. Whether somebody's religious or not, they see the significance of Christmas, and that's deeply, deeply symbolic. It's, it's representative of something that's going on in our hearts when we remember the birth of Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the salvation that he brings. We thank you for the crucifixion. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that we are part of your family and that if we believe in you, that we're a child of you. I pray that this year, as we remember the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that it would just, that we would embody the emotions and the depth and the gravity of what it means to know you and that the Son of God, the deity incarnate in flesh, born into this world, how significant and how powerful that is. Work in our hearts, our minds, and our souls. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.